guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. I have a great episode for you guys today. As usual, one of my uh, one of my editors and a and a mentor of mine, I guess you could say, Pete Stout, is coming on the podcast. He is the founder of Triple Zero Magazine. Uh, he was previously the editor of Porsche Panorama and Excellence. And Excellence, yeah. He's been a, a writer and journalist. He's driven every new Porsche since the 993. And... All of the and, old ones. And all <laughs> Not the, all of all them. All kinds of RSRs, 917s. Kind of the coolest stuff out there. He, he He's driven it all, and he's had a lot of experiences. He has a lot of great stories. Um, What's cool, too, is he talks about driving some of these cars. He's not a professional race car driver, so he's kind of like, I was going to make this analogy during the episode. Have you ever heard the theory that in every, like, professional sports or in the Olympics, they should always have like the average Joe to be out there competing. Just so you can have a barometer of like, oh wow, okay, these guys are yeah. really, really good. Like some guy face. Well, now you're saying Pete is going to face plant when he tries no, to jump over one of those No, he's very. He's obviously. He even talks about. Like, he's like, he's very qualified. Yeah, he's a very hybrid. But I like just how he can explain like the act of some of these amazing cars to right. the everyman. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's one of th- one of the things that makes him a great writer is putting the reader in his position, which right. is. Uh, that's the best advice he ever gave me is I've talked a lot about the piece I wrote about Akim, which is the 911 that I went to Berlin. He's the designer right. for Bugatti, you know, and he built an old lightweight 911. And it was, uh, so let me, re- let me start over. I met Pete when he still worked at uh, Porsche Panorama. Okay. He called me up and he says, Hey, I'm looking for it. Now I wasn't, a, I wasn't even really writing at the time. Okay. I wasn't writing at all. I was just a, just a guy taking car pictures for PVW magazine. Right, it was whatever, and uh, I think I had I had my white nine eleven at the time, maybe, probably, Gosh, yeah, I probably had my white nine eleven or or very early on with my with my Elbert blue car, and he calls me, he's like, hey, can you take pictures of of this car for me? And I said, well, what is it? And he says, oh, it's a nine nine six turbo, it's got five hundred thousand miles on it. It was this, this oh cool this dude that just drove the wheels off of his off of his nine nine six, and um. I ended up taking the pictures, and honestly, in, in at the time, I was like, ah, this car doesn't even really look like it has that many miles on it. Okay. It just had some rock chips and stuff like that. Yeah. So I found it a little bit difficult to shoot, and I remember um, Pete saying, do you have a few more photos? Yeah. Like, I just, I didn't nail it. Okay. And, and I was, and that's, and that happens sometimes. Sure. In life, whatever you're doing, it's okay. It's You're not going to nail it every single time. <laughs> you will fail. You absolutely will fail. And I failed him. Okay. And uh, the, they ended up using the photos. They were good. I went and took more and, and did, okay. a be- did a better job the second got time Got the around. car dirty. No, I did not get the car dirty. <laughs> but it was difficult to show the patina. He wasn't yeah. looking for me to show more patina. He just didn't. I don't think he thought I sent in enough photos. Gotcha. So I ended up sending out photos. And I didn't really. And I did a few other things for, for Panorama back then at the time. And then Pete started Triple Zero Magazine, which is right. amazing. You know, we've talked about it a lot here. And I hope everybody, obviously everybody's probably not a subscriber. If you're not, you should be. If you like Porsche, it's absolutely great. Um, and I said, hey, I, I talked to Pete. This, I think this was my, I think it was my first piece with Triple Zero, maybe. I, yes, I think it was. And I, I called up Pete. I said, hey, I've got this car. I think it'd be really interesting. It's the designer for Bugatti design, the the Veyron. Oh, so you actually brought up the concept to him. Yes. Okay. Yes. And I said, I, I would really love to do this. And he said, more or less, go do it. We'll see how you do. <laughs> right? I mean, because yeah. I hadn't I hadn't written anything right. for them. I'd written a few other things for Stance Works and, right. and a few other pieces that were um, really, uh, 
I what, not what, the same audience, not the same caliber. No, no, it's, it's, it doesn't have anything to do with that because I write the same no matter who I'm writing for. It doesn't okay. really. My audience is, is car people, and I, I don't. I guess I don't really change the way I write depending on who I write for. Okay, I just kind of write how I write. Now, um, at the time, I, I was writing very like, oh well, I received this 911. I went to the airport. I picked it up. I, I did this. I did that. It was like this. It, this happened. That happened. Boom. Story over. And he. When I when I started writing and I showed him a little bit about how I was writing, he's like, "Chris, I want you to, um, I want you to take yourself out of this story. I want you to remove yourself from the story. And one of the reasons that you do that as a writer is because if I'm writing a story and I say I all the time, people are imagining me doing something. Right? They're they're saying, "Well, he did this. If you can take yourself out of the story, it can be them." Mm-hmm. It can be them. People can imagine it themselves. They can engross themselves in the story as as an individual. And 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 I and I did it. And it was <laughs> and it was fucking hard. It was yeah. the it was the hardest thing I've ever written because I'd never done anything like that before. It was really really difficult. And it took forever for me to write. It took me months to write this. I would write a bunch of stuff and I would and I would get really angry and frustrated and I would put it away and then I wouldn't write it again and he wasn't bothering me for the piece or anything. It was something that he didn't conscript me to do or or hire me to do so he just kind of, you know, left me alone with it even. Sure. But and the pictures were great. Like the photos that I did out there were awesome. They were in Berlin. It's really really cool photography. But the words were really hard. But eventually I finished it up and I gave it to him and he said this is good. We'll run it. And it was a huge relief because yeah. it cost me a ton of money to go to Germany. And, and it was and, a gamble. And get out there and everything. And um, since I, I've found Pete to to be an incredibly passionate man that I I find myself drawn to as, as a person, as a as a friend. And I feel like I can go to him with questions and, and everything like that. And I can have a conversation. Every time I call him, it ends up being this enormous conversation because we just can't stop talking to each other because I think he's just, <laughs> he's really, a, he's a, he's a great listener. And yeah. uh, you can tell that he really cares about the person he's having the conversation with. And a lot of people, when you're talking to them, you can tell that they're other places or, or they're thinking about what they're going to say. Right. Right. He doesn't do any of that. He really cares about, about who he's talking to. And I think his passion for, for people and, and, and cars and writing it, and it, it's all packaged up in, in triple zero and how much he cares about, about that publication it's it's it 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 really matters you know and when i when i wrote the the take the car piece which is my i don't know my opus i guess at the, <laughs> at the point that i wrote it which is my 50 55 or 60 page article about driving my 911 it's fifteen thousand words which is enormous it's a ton amount it's a ton of words for a magazine I, I would wager that anything called a magazine has never run anything that's fifteen thousand words before i could see i that. would wager that and I remember going out to, um, wow, this was probably, I'm trying to imagine when this was. I think I was only at the triple zero office. I think I've only been there once. And I think it was the same time that I flew out to pick up the AMG Mercedes. Okay. So I I think hmm, maybe it was a different time that I was in San Francisco. I don't, I don't remember why I was in San Francisco. I don't remember the AMG was from San Francisco. The AMG was from San Francisco. It was. Okay. But I don't remember what had taken me out to... Oh, I know what it was. I think it was after, uh, was it after Luft that I drove up there? Maybe that's, no. No. No, I don't remember why. I don't remember why I was there. Anyways, it was the same time that my Take the Car article was coming out. Sure. 
And I remember going into the office and he says, do you want to see your proof? So, yeah, I really want to see my proof because oh, cool. I cannot tell anyone enough how much I poured in, of myself into that article. Yeah, I wrote an article about myself going to do this road trip without saying I. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was hard. Not as hard as the Aking piece, because it, 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 it was, but it was a very experiential piece. And, sure. Um, if you haven't read it, if you don't have a subscription to Triple Magazine, you can get the back issues if you want to read it. Yeah. But if you're a Patreon member, I also narrated it. That's true. It is in one of our exclusive episodes. If you're interested, it's only five bucks if you want to hear it. Worth $5, I think. Yeah. And he showed me the proof. And this is after we'd had dinner and everything else. And I'd really become really comfortable with Pete. Sure. I cried. And I gave him a hug. And I said, thank you. Thank you for doing this for me. Yeah. Thank you for allow being the vehicle of which this story of something that was so just it was an incredible thing in my life it was transformative that that piece and writing that and shooting that and having it in triple zero and doing it with pete and his feedback it was a very transcendent moment for me it changed who i am and what i wanted to be and what i wanted to do in terms of sharing my work with others was that and it all kind of culminated at that moment and i and i cried and hugged pete and said <laughs> thank you for doing this for me thank you for being this palette for me because he didn't really change anything hmm. and it was just this thing that he helped me put out into the world and it's i don't know if i'll ever be able to do something like that again petrol box is a monthly subscription service made specifically for the automotive enthusiast and if you're struggling to get a gift for that car guy or car girl in your life a petrol box subscription is a great idea each month they carefully select items including tools detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, publications to be sent right there to your doorstep. It's kind of a curated selection of the latest and greatest gear in the industry. And there's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. The Petrobox Basic costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrobox Premium gets even more gear for $39.95 a month. Check them out at mypetrolbox.com and be sure to use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month. All right, guys, it's always a pleasure to talk to Pete, and I hope you guys enjoy the interview. Mr. Pete Stout, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast with us. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. It's, it's great to be with you guys, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking about all sorts of things. I, I was just on my way down the hallway to come into the studio today, and I was thinking, I'm trying to think about how best to... Um, talk about your philosophy with cars. And we're going to get into a little bit of your history and your journalism and triple zero and some of the experiences that you've had. But I was really trying to figure out how to just really pare it down to like kind of one question. And I was thinking about um, when we were at Luftgekult together and my car was in the triple zero booth. And this is before anybody got here, got there. And I think this is when this conversation occurred. But you told me, you're like, I'm so glad that you made it out here uh, with your car. I think it's one of the more important cars that are here. And that really threw me for a loop because I, you know, when you look at all the cars that are there, there's, you know, race cars that are there. There's really significant cars that are there. And I think I had like scared you that I got into an accident on the way or something like that, that something had happened to my car. And you're like, your car is really, really important. And it gave me like this little window into what matters to you when it comes to cars and Porsche and driving and stuff like that. So I was kind of wondering what, what prompted you to think that way about a particular car that really, in the scheme of things of all the cars we talk about and all the drivers we talk about and everything, isn't significant. But it seemed to matter to you, and I'm wondering why. 
I think, I think first of all, the way that the, the, a car presents itself to the world a certain way, and I'm fascinated by particular cars and the way that they present themselves, the way that somebody has presented them. And I think about I think about, you might remember a quote, it's, and I'm not just saying this because it's you who happened to author the story, but you know that there was a story on Achim, um, you'll have to remind me, Achim's last name. Anscheid, uh, yeah. The, the yeah, Achim Anscheid, yeah, exactly. The Bugatti designer, he said, well, isn't this kind of elitist? And he said, no. He said, no, no. He said, what a, what a pity if if this becomes elitist. You know, it, it this doesn't have to be about Bugatti or Porsche or Ferrari or BMW you know, uh, this is not his direct quote, but what he was getting at was, you know, there's there's the young enthusiast with a Honda Civic who maybe can't afford uh, a Shelby Mustang or something, but you know, lowers the car a little, gets the right wheels and tires, puts a puts an exhaust on it, and that's not elitist. That's that's a statement of art. That's a statement of personality. And the reason I felt your car was important, if I remember correctly, it's hard to go back to those feelings exactly on this call. But um, what I remember was the car looks right. You know, the car really presents well. You and I've talked about that before. It's, it, it, I have a particular eye. And so it's not to say that my taste is other people's taste, but your car hit all the notes for my own taste, the ride height, the color, the wheel, tire setup, just the overall of it. But I think the other part for me was as important to me because you drove it. You drove it to Lufthacolt, to California, from Minnesota. And that's about being together. And that's a statement of its own. And it's a statement of, uh, of use. And so many of the cars that come to cars and coffee type events, uh, which is what Lufthacolt is, it's sort of a supercharged cars and coffee um, And so is Rare Shades. I mean, at some level, our own Rare Shades events are... It, those are meant to be casual events and they draw casual attendees and there's nothing wrong with that uh, at all. And then obviously there were, as you state, there were some really important cars at, at Luca Colt historically, a real 916, a, a, a proper 914 6 GT, a factory car, both in the 50th year of the 914, a 917, a 935. There were many cars there that were really important in those ways. But I've always been passionate about a car that catches me on the street uh, in Berkeley or San Francisco or L.A. or Minneapolis, wherever I am in Europe, um, that, that shows intention, that shows that someone cared, that shows someone decided to make a statement with a car quietly, and your car hits those notes for me. I like the cars that make quiet statements. And then you add to that the fact that you drove it all the way from Minnesota to be with us. And I don't mean us triple zero. I mean us, everybody who came to that event. Uh, that's important to me. That's more important in a way than than the car that came just down the street. Uh, in my case, just down the streets from San Francisco. So five, six hours. But, um, you know, there are a lot of cars that just drove a few minutes. You drove a few days. And that matters. So with this concept of getting to understand where you are, that's kind of where you are now with what matters to you with a car. And there's obviously, there's way more to you know, other cars that, that take all the boxes for you as well. But where did it start for you? Where did this imprint come from? And we'll talk probably a little bit about your 914. At some point, it's inevitable that was your first car. But what was it that imprinted on you about cars and motoring in general? 
what was was there any moment or anything that happened to you specifically that set you down this road to become you know the eventual uh founder of triple zero magazine yeah it was probably it was probably a mixture of sort of a couple of things isn't it always for most people i mean is there a defining moment no but i i think uh, there's a few things that are cl- that were clear imprints, and 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 one of those started with I was a transportation junkie from a very young age. I, I just my father was an engineer, my mother a designer, and effectively, I think my father got me a, a, a subscription to CarCraft when I was really little, like probably four or five, and I didn't really understand what all the scantily clad women were doing in there, and. Um, <laughs> And then my subscription ended up being changed to car and driver not long after. I, I never got to ask my mom if that was uh, her work. But uh, there was probably some interesting it. questions from the five-year-old. Hey, mommy, what's what's going yeah. on here? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Totally. And um, and so not long after I got a subscription to car and driver, I was probably still single-digit age, you know, five, six, something like this. And and um, you know, Chevacheta and all these Pat Bedard and all these all these characters started becoming mentors in a way. But the car that really changed things there was a thing called special. The, it was called the Specialty File, and it wasn't in every issue of Car and Driver. But they would shine a light on sort sort of an unusual car. And I remember an E thirty three series with an early E thirty three series. Uh, I think still big bumpered, maybe. I think still big bumpered. Um, with a Buick GNX engine in it. And as a boy, I was fascinated by that. And then came a Dynan M6. Back then, I wasn't that in- interested in Porsche. I was interested in other things. Um, and I kind of discovered the word of, world of Alpina. And kind of feeding all this stuff at the same time was the car culture of Berkeley, California. And people don't really understand Berkeley very well. They tend to think of Berkeley as this tree huggers, uh, liberal paradise and there's some element of truth to that, for sure. Uh, there's a reason for that reputation. But the other side of it is, is, that, is there's a super rich car culture in Berkeley and, and the surrounding areas. I grew up just outside of Berkeley, as my father put it, just far enough away from Berkeley. I think my mother would have loved, as a, as a, as a Dutch woman, she would have loved to have been in Berkeley proper. Uh, but we, I grew up in El Cerrito, which is a town that no one knows except for Creedence Clearwater Revival. It's a, it's a bedroom <laughs> community. That's like its only claim to fame is credence and dog racing. And so, um, and so, but I grew up around Berkeley and Berkeley has this very, very rich car culture, mainly around Gilman street down by, by the freeway down there and, uh, incredible Alfa Romeo culture, incredible, uh, Datsun culture. There were five tens everywhere when I was growing up and 2002s and old Lotus Europas and, and sort of, you know, A1 and A2 rabbits and golfs and GTIs and and Jettas and all these cool cars. And kind of, I, I wrote a column about this years and years ago. The one thing that was the uniting factor was everyone was running Yokohama AW8s back then. Like Is that, that was the, the one thing. with the little circles on them with the little dots yeah. on them? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, with the broad shoulder, terrible in the rain, but like, you know, very, those had an imprint on me because didn't matter if it was a Julius Super Ti slammed or uh, a Lotus Europa or a 914 or a 911 or a 2002. 
um, they were a lot of people were running either AWS or ABSs. One of my buddies um, has AVS intermediate still on his BBS RSs oh, that are on his rabbit. They're still there and he drives it. Yeah. It's yeah, those tires were those tires were incredible. Uh, I put them on my my Exerati. I had AmeriCorps in college, and 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 uh, you know I could barely afford them. I really couldn't afford them. But uh, no, you, that had an imprint. And what what people people think of California car culture, they think of Southern California, and rightly so. I mean, that's the sort of that's the that's the core and the center, and 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 it's so huge. But there was this other car culture in California up here in the Bay Area, and the hot rods here uh, were in some ways opposite. The hot rods here were sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, OEM plus. And they were sort of, the, the, the vibe up here was a car, no body kit, you know, maybe a little low, wheels, tires, maybe a muffler of some sort. And and when that was enough, everybody else knew. Why was it so segregated that, compared to Southern California? Is it like a demographics well, thing or what was the, because what do you think of SoCal is wild, right? Comparison. That that exists down there too. There's a group that loves those kinds of cars down there too. Okay. Um, but, but it was, it was more prevalent here, I would argue. And LA is more flash than the Bay Area. It just isn't. It, it often has been, you know, there's the, all the stereotypes of people who will live in, terrible housing but have a brand new mercedes sl um and growing up in berkeley hills so there's berkeley everybody knows berkeley cal berkeley the 1960s you know uh summer love you, you name it right there's that berkeley but then there's the berkeley hills and a lot of people don't know a thing about the berkeley hills and it's sort of the shire up there it's all these crazy <laughs> curvy streets that are ridiculous it's the polar opposite of san francisco which is a true grid which is why it has the super steep streets Berkeley, they built uh, around the topography. So all the streets are super curvy and ridiculous. And, and you can get, I love getting lost up there. I drove my 914 for years up there. But there's also a collection of back roads up there. It's our Mulholland. You know, we've all heard about Mulholland down in LA. Well, there was a, there's a Mulholland in the Bay Area too, or several of them. But the Grizzly Peak and some of those roads up there, they used to be largely unpatrolled or a lot less patrolled than now. And you didn't have the bicyclists. And everybody went up there to run. And that's where the R group came out of. The R group came out of those sports purpose 911s, which is a lot what your car looks like. Um, those cars were built to run Grizzly Peak and all those back roads up there in the Berkeley Hills. There's a collection of them. And um, all those some sort of subtle cars, it was a way of signaling to everybody else. Like if you had a stock E3325IS, no one cared. You were probably a dentist or a student or whatever. If you had a E3325 IS lowered with Euro bumpers and 15 or 16 inch Hartka wheels, everyone knew, you know, and it kind of fit with the Berkeley Hills. You have a lot of wealth up there in the Berkeley Hills, but people drive, they don't drive 240 GL wagons. They weren't driving those. They were driving 240 DL wagons. You know, it was a, it was a, it's, there's parts of the East coast. I understand are that way too. It's, it's sort of old money, quieter money um but infected with this neuroses you'd see crazy cars up in those hills you know you'd see street parked citroens and 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 um and 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 and, and i mean wild stuff it's just like wild it's their way cars. of these this quiet money finding one way to identify themselves i really something. like that term i hadn't heard that before you've yeah. heard old money but quiet money is so much more evocative yeah, and, and Berkeley Hills, Berkeley Hills is full of it. Berkeley Hills is this 
the homes, some of the homes are absolutely gorgeous. They have these incredible views. Some don't. And they're dotted all up into those hills. And, you know, that was my childhood was spent, you know, Boy Scout trips were in Vanigans and 240 DLs, not GLs. Um, and the rest and, was spent terrorizing the qu- people with the quiet money in the hills with your 914. <laughs> oh, you got it. I, I cut more than a few classes driving around in my 914, just driving around up there. Uh, and I was up there, you know, I, I ran into one of my, my, my best friend's little brother. I was, he was turning left and I was turning right or the other way around. I was, I was turning right off of the Arlington. I'm sorry, left off of the Arlington to go up to Grizzly Peak. And, you know, he's in his mom's Thunderbird and like rolls down the window. He's like, he's, Oh, you going up to the racetrack? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> so that was, that was in, those were imprints for sure. And then finally, there was also the sort of mixture of, of car cultures out of San Francisco too. You know, the, the times that I'd go over for Christmas, we're coming into Christmas season and seeing a black five, uh, I'm sorry, a black 400 I in the parking garage under, under union square. And I was, I was little, I don't remember how old, but even at that age, I was like, okay, that's, I love the 512 BB and you'd every blue moon, you'd see a car like that in the Bay area, not like LA where they're more common. That's true now and true back then. Uh, it was truer back then, but I remember seeing this 400i and being completely blown away by it at probably age eight or nine or something. And I just thought that is the most sophisticated, cool car. Uh, I still have a thing for those. So I like cars that don't. I like cars that shout too. Well, hey, don't get me wrong. That's an affordable Ferrari. I mean, you could get one of those today for you know in a complete basket case for thirty grand. Oh, if one of those, if if I had any any, if I had any. Uh, reassurance that that car would be a reliable daily i would strongly consider running one like I, nobody's I just, gonna give you I, that that no, assurance no no and i'm not either so no it it, it you know it, it's it's um all those things it, it's funny because uh, you know i i i i like cars that are loud and and i like gt3s and rs's and R, rs4 liters still my favorite factory 911 and i would drive one with a big old wing on the back of it but if you get to heart of hearts, I like stuff like E34, M5s, and 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 500E, E500s, the OG cars. I like these quieter, quieter cars that kind of speak softly and and carry a decent sized stick. And and your car hit me that way. Um, and, and those are you know kind of the sleeper ethic. I've always those cars have always appealed to me in a different way. And it's funny as I get older. Where when I was a kid, I dreamed like everybody else about a Countach or a 512BB or, or, or whatever. It's funny, as I into my 40s, I, those cars hold so much less appeal to me now. It's, it's really interesting. You know, speaking of Chris's car as speaking softly and carrying a big stick, you obviously didn't spend, what, 12 plus hours in it across the country. It is not a softly <laughs> speaking car. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, it's it's yeah, better than no, it used to be. That's true, but you know, I mean, it, that's what happens when you put a somewhat uncorked flat six in these things. I uh, I went to go visit a hot rodder yesterday, who's got the world's most beautiful firewall in progress. I don't know how many years he has into this firewall, and um, it's just art. And I went to visit him briefly and uh, look at some tail lights, which is an odd thing to share. Anyways, uh, I drove my nine fourteen up there wanting to get a semi-sunny day drive in. And uh, I realized it was cold. It's cold. This typical Northern California December. So it's clear, but chilly. Define cold. And, <laughs> it's uh, all relative. 
cold enough that my feet are cold uh, yeah. without because I got headers and no heat. So. Right, right. Yeah, I'd say so not Birkenstock weather. That's usually my no. my barometer. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so like fifties, <laughs> midday fifties, like midday fifties, which isn't cold for you guys. That's still Birkenstock but weather. <laughs> it, was probably, it was probably thirties when I got up, you know, in the morning. Sure. So and just kind of kept that chill. So I drove up there with the top on. It was top on weather, and I realized how unpleasant that. Like a friend of mine, John, uh, I. I perverted slash converted him into a 914 guy he's got crazy stuff career gt and gt3s is the only rs4 liter owner that i know who switched to five lugs and drives it in the mud like he just it's just a car which is super cool so i got him into 914s and he's like 914 good roof off car terrible with the roof on i was like whatever john because i've been driving this thing for 30 years with the roof on i drove it up to see my friend yesterday and just like 20 30 minutes in the freeway with the roof on i was like he's right with the six cylinder, this car is not nice with the roof on. It's it's just wonderful with the roof off, but it's just not. It's like it's like that cam chain noise and induction. Like every single frequency is just like a nail in your ear, with it right behind your head. And um, it's a strange thing to think about because you take the roof off and it's like sounds of Le Mans 1970. You can't get enough. Yeah, well, I yeah, my car is quite loud. I I will admit I've done different things to try and try and mitigate that as time has gone on. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your journalism, and because that's that's how we know each other, right? And um, how did you start writing? Was there a was there something? Obviously, you were really into Car and Driver and reading those and kind of looking up to those guys, like you said. Uh, was there a, a piece that you first got paid to write that you were proud of, or? Um. Well, proud of, no. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I've gone back to my original story that was published in Excellence. I I actually came across the old notes from it. The original printed out in the Westmont College Computer Lab because I couldn't afford a printer for 10 cents a sheet or whatever it was back then. Um, The Word doc, double space, sent to Tom Toldrian. And I, you know, here it had his his notes on it, you know, his criticisms of my first submission. And there's remarkably few, and I know the only reason for that is I think I was so terrified sending that in that I must have printed it out at five or ten cents a sheet about 40 times. Like, I really <laughs> sweated it. When I submitted my first story, I was so ter- So I probably, by no level of talent, just spent so much time on it that it was so clean he didn't have to change stuff for typos. That sounds like me when I see um, the article about Akim from <laughs> Berlin. Okay, okay. So, <laughs> so there you go. All right. But but here's the thing is it's not a good piece. It it's just um it's just not a good piece. It 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 in my opinion. Um as with anything, like if you go back to your early work you're hopefully you've grown right so that's 20 that's 20 something years ago now um but it was the first piece published and so in the sense i'm of course i'm proud of that because i was a college student and i basically took my journalism course and asked professor can i write a long form story could it count for two assignments and he said sure and he was a theater wonk you know british theater big stoppard fan um interesting dude cared not a lick about cars so i actually had to i actually had to attach a glossary of terms to my piece when i turned it into this professor <laughs> oh my you god know, this I, is chris's I, worst nightmare <laughs> and i know this by experience <laughs> I, I, you know I, I i i had to 
I had to uh, like do a glossary for what what does a 964 mean? What does a C2 mean? What is a you know what is a limited slip? What's an LSB? Like you no, know, it's not something you drop. Like, <laughs> like what, you know what? So I I submitted it and um, it got published. And I remember in college receiving that at the tiny little post office on campus and walking down to class with my first published piece. That was that was pretty wild. Uh, that was a pretty that, so that, that was May ninety four or ninety five I can't remember, um, and it was on a it was on a uh, the first quote unquote big block whatever you want to call it but it was on the first um, big displacement nine fourteen that I know of in the Bay Area it was a three point six liter back in ninety four ninety five and if you think about that now three point six is pedestrian but if you think about ninety four ninety five remember they they couldn't sell Porsches to save their lives in the early nineties. They hit their rock bottom. I think it was 3,700 cars total across 964, 968 and 928 in 93, 1993. They only sold, I think it was 3,700 ish cars. So where are you going to go to get a 3.6 liter? There aren't very many being sold uh, by 94, 95. And this guy put it into a 914 uh, and it was kind of his bonsai tree. He, he had a super stressful job at uh, Charles Schwab, um, and this was sort of he spent an un, unheard of amount of money on this 914 back in the 90s, and it was because it was his stress reliever. And so he um, he uh, he basically just kept working on it. He bought it as a race car and turned it back into a street car. Lost his shirt on it. Uh, car is sold, I think, once or twice on Bring a Trailer since then. Still nowhere near what he spent on it back in the 90s. But um, he and I became friends out of that. And we I just talked to him yesterday, actually. He's a life mentor for me. He's in his 70s now. And pre-COVID, we would try to have lunch every every month, if not more. He's really, he's become a brother. You know, it's, it's, um, it's funny how those things can work. But he's a dear, dear friend. Uh, and so Ernie, his name's Ernie King. He's just a really, really good guy, good as good as humans get. So that piece means a lot to me because it didn't start our friendship, but it definitely cemented it. And over the years, you've uh, you've given me some good advice when it comes to writing. Some of the best advice, actually, the the, the singular best advice I've ever had when it comes to writing. Um, what mm-hmm. was the most inspiring advice you've gotten in the journalism world as you've gone through over the last you know twenty years, twenty thirty years? Serve the reader. Three words: serve the reader. What does that mean when you're when you're writing a piece or or putting something together? Make it fun for the reader first of all. You know, make it an experience. You know, I come also from a bit of a theater background, and I did technical theater, so lighting, sound, stage management, that sort of stuff, um, set construction. And I was taught that the proscenium arch matters. And the proscenium arch, for those who aren't familiar, is is, is the arch uh, under which the the play takes place. And so the the proscenium arch hides if theater is good enough to big enough to have a fly gallery, which is where all the sets hide when they go up and down. Um, some theaters don't have a fly gallery, but effectively proscenium March is the frame in which the, the play happens on the stage. And I take serve the reader um, as keeping your game tight. You know, you don't want a ladder crashing out from the side stage because the, the, the illusion, the suspension of disbelief is gone. So you want a seamless experience for the reader you want it to be fun. You want it to be engrossing. You want it to be something that starts and they got to finish it. And so for me, things that some 
don't worry so much about. Uh, I obsess over, you know, typos matter because they, they, that's a ladder coming in from the side of the stage. Um, it starts from the minute they walk in the place, you know, you don't want dirty floors. You, it's a, it, it's a goofy way, I guess. I mean, it's a very inefficient thing. I ask me how I know with extremely glamorous Friday nights at triple zero, but it, <laughs> it's, it's the same for any theater. You know, people don't, they don't come for your prep. They come for the show and the prep comes through in the show. And so for me, serve the reader is the same as it would be for setting out a, a great, a great theater performance. It's a lot of rehearsals it's clean floors. It's the way that you open the doors and greet them. It's, it's every aspect. So for me, serve the reader has to do with all that. And then it also has to do with the second best piece of advice I ever got. It was from Bob Carlson, who was a legendary PR guy at, at Porsche Cars North America, uh, who we lost to cancer. And um, I initially looked at him as like the devil. I was like, you know, exorcist spec. I was like, oh, PR guy. It's like, that's the enemy. And Bob was so insanely professional that we became really good friends and he became a mentor in a way because he was a journalist at one time. And his, his advice could be summed up in two words. It was be professional. You know, in the end it was, he said to me one day, he said, write anything you want, just make sure you can back it up. And I thought, wow, a PR guy is saying, write whatever you want. Wow. I didn't expect that. But then, oh, there's a caveat there. He's saying, just make sure you can back it up. And that falls under serve the reader too. What, he, what Bob was really saying is be professional. And so don't write anything that you can't back up that doesn't have truth to it. Is each thing true that you're writing or are you qualifying it as opinion or qualifying it as, as observation? But the, the point Bob was getting at is be professional because that, that also serves the reader. If, if, you, if you do something well in the here and now, it opens up possibilities for the future. You know, when we do things badly in the here and now, it closes opportunities for the future. And we're all human. I fail on a daily basis, but I, I like this idea of that Bob Bob basically lived to be any every aspect of his his career. It's very rare that I see twenty years working with Bob or almost twenty years working with Bob that I saw anything other than professionalism. He was just so through and through a professional, and it showed in the way that people regarded him and it showed therefore in the way that people regarded Porsche cars, North America, his events were incredible. I mean, he called up one day and he's like, Hey, uh, I want you to come out to black rock desert. I was like, Oh, well, we're doing black rock desert. This is not long after the world land speed record was set there. And, uh, he said, Oh, we're going to drive nine and six turbos. You're going to be able to drive as fast as you want. And I was like, you're doing what? And he said, I said, you're putting journal car journalists in nine and six turbos and just setting them free on the dirt. And he's like, yeah, he's like, but don't worry, Hurley will be sitting next to them. And I was like, <laughs> no pressure. I was like, I was like did, so did you, uh, did you buy Hurley some rubber underwear? Like, what? <laughs> like for real? And, you know, he did that. He did Pikes Peak when it was still dirt and Cayenne Turbos. And the interesting thing about him was he trusted the product to bring ordinary people through really, really dangerous situations in some cases. And he was right. Nobody ever got hurt on those. He, he, he set the, the right stage out he set the right he did all the rehearsals correctly uh although it, i guess i can kind of spoof him and hurley if he ever hears this he'll get a good chuckle so uh one thing that did they did their rehearsal when the black rock desert was um 
was so Black Rock Desert floods. It's really a lake bed. It floods and then it and then it's not very deep. Like you can probably walk through it most times, if not all times. And then it dries. And when it dries initially, it's like concrete. It's like 44 miles of concrete or whatever. It just goes on and on and on. It's perfectly flat, which is why they use it. So they went out and did the pre-run and everything was great. Well, when they went back two weeks later and all the journalists were on the way, um, a silt layer had built up. And so the silt meant that the back of the car started walking at about 140, 145 miles an hour. The back of the car started um, weaving started uh, oversteering slightly. And so you hit about 145 miles an hour in the back and start walking back and forth, you know, kind of like it start kind of wagging its tail at about 145 miles an hour. And so they told you this before you went out with Hurley sitting there looking as grim as I've ever seen him. <laughs> and uh, he's just like flinching over there. I don't know. I don't know what Bob paid him to do that. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, get in the car with them and Harley says, okay, we're going to go up to 145. And if you're comfortable with the car, with the way the car behaves at 145, we'll go back to the start line and they'll blast all the dust out of the wheels because the dirt would accumulate in the wheels and cause imbalances. So, you know, I go do that and I'm like, oh, I didn't expect to be comfortable. I thought it was like, thanks for this, but no thanks. <laughs> but I, I was actually okay. So I, and what you had to do was you, um, you had to counter steer, but you didn't so much as actually counter steer as think about counter steering and that was kind of enough it was like it was so slight your corrections had to be almost not there you're you're with the tail going wide and then trying to re catch it on the recorrect and the recorrect and the recorrect and the re you're just constantly catching recorrects so we go back clean out the wheels they blow them out with the compressed air and we go and uh i ended up i didn't learn the secret the secret was you were supposed to floor it from the get-go if you wanted to get one of the best trap speeds. They only let you do it once, which was smart. They didn't want you to figure out the trick. But I, they had USAC there testing it. They had the same sanctioning body as Indy 500 to, to test your speeds, you know, to, to handle the trap speeds. And I ended up hitting, hundred I think it was 177.865 miles an hour on dirt in a stock 996 turbo with a cage and a fuel cell. And um, we're driving back and Hurley, you know, looks, uh, I look over at Hurley who's saying nothing and, you know, typical Hurley. And I say, hey, was that at all like driving a 917 or, or, or 956 <laughs> or something in the rain? Was that at all like driving at Le Mans in the rain? At, you know, and, and just silence. And I was like, okay, I'm an idiot. Tell me I'm an idiot. <laughs> and uh, and, and he, after a while, he quietly says, you know, that's exactly what it was like. And I just thought, wow. And we get back, you know, we get back to the, the the staging area, and all these all these other journalists are there, and they're like, "Oh, wasn't that the best thing ever? And what's, wasn't that incredible?" And I got, I was like, "Nope, if I never have to do that again in my life, I'll be fine." <laughs> <laughs> Did it once, don't need to do it again. I think that's another thing. Just as different kinds of cars appeal to different kinds of people, flashy, not flashy, wild, not wild, and sometimes the thing that you think you don't like cuts through. Like I'm not a low rider guy, but every now and then the ride Impala is like, wow, that's art might not be my thing, but it's art. Same is true for experiences. I'm not a top speed person. I I've done it a bunch of times. I've been at or around or beyond 200 miles an hour on the Autobahn and other places. It doesn't, I, if I never do it again, that's fine with me. Like it doesn't do much for me, but a back road, that's curvy, sufficiently curvy and bumpy. I like bumpy back roads where you have to like actually think about 
not just the line, but where you're going to have um, traction. Well, boy, have I got the road for you. Head up to the Lost Coast. <laughs> just- <laughs> oh, I've, been there. I've been there. That that road that you wrote about is terrible. Oh, Even awful. for me, that road is terrible. But but there are so many great roads between here and there and elsewhere where you know that's where I'm in my happy space. Like I'm in my happy space when you're in those zones versus top speed stuff. And I guess trying to circle back from this meandering circle away from serve the reader, it's, it's take them along, take them along for the ride. I mean, when I've, when you and I have talked, I've been, Chris, you know, bring them along. Don't make this about you. Uh, you know, make it so that they feel like they're there with you in the car, make them feel like they're the one experiencing this trip and this journey. And that was the most and, difficult transition yeah. I made in writing was writing, taking writing it from a perspective that was still like a first person style perspective, but without using the word I. Yeah. It was, it's it hard. Was super hard. But it now it's just how I write. It's just it it's become what me I do. Me too. Me too. It's 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 um it was a challenge that I faced early on and it's a challenge I bring to other authors. And it doesn't mean there there are times when it just gets so circuitous in the text to try to avoid saying I, that you have to give up and you have to go back to I. Um, but it's a good mental challenge. And I don't remember who, I think it was Jay Lamb, but someone challenged me with that. Say, don't make this about you. Make it about the reader. Serve the reader. You know, Make it so that the reader can feel as though they're, with, they're the one doing this. Bring them into the car with you. Bring them into this journey with you. It was really good advice and still guides, it guides everything of what we do here at triple zero. So as a journalist, you've driven pretty much every Porsche since 993 and you've also driven some really, uh, really unique cars. And when we hear about race cars, you talked about Hurley Haywood. Um, and we've got, I've talked to Brian Redman and Derek Bell and Pat Long and all these professional drivers. And I'm like, what is it like to do this? What is it like to drive whatever? But their perspective is completely unrelatable to me because it's something their sense of velocity is way different than mine, right? And different right. than yours. And one perspective we don't get very often is what it is like for just a regular guy. Um, obviously, you've driven a lot of things, so you've got a little bit more experience, but you've driven some really special things. Like you drove a 917K at Sears Point, and you wrote an article about it. And I kind of want to hear that story about what the perspective is like of a non-race car driver getting in one of those and getting to drive it. Yeah, you know, Ernie King, the guy I mentioned earlier is a life mentor. He um he and I talk a lot at lunch and you know, we both love like for instance Chris Harris, who's a, a regular guy who's gone on to insane level of car control and, and drifting and all these things. And Ernie's, you know, at various points, oh, you know, Chris is first of all, Chris, great guy. I worked with him a little bit when I was at Excellence and um but Ernie's like, you know, that's just not relatable. There comes a point where what can I, I can't drift even at a track day. I can't drift. They'll kick me out where I can't drift on the street. So how does that relate to me? And the same is true with what you just said. Ernie said, you know, these race car drivers are legends. They're great, but you know, where they're driving and what they did with what they did was on the little edges of those tire sidewalls and shoulders. You know, they were out of the, nobody drives a street car that way. And if they do, they should be in jail. You know, it's, it's, it's a, and very few of us, I mean, I drive a desk more days than not. So if anything keeps me a normal person that's driving a desk as much as I do. So it is about being relatable. Now, I guess I'm a bit of a hybrid in so many years of, of training with Hurley, with David Murray, Pat, others. There, there have been some phenomenal teachers along the way, some of the best actually in Europe as well. 
Um, so there's some, there was some lead up. It wasn't just anybody was thrown into that 917 and sent out at Sears Point. Uh, it was, that was kind of culmination of 20 years of this, doing some Rensport reunions, racing an old RSR and a 51, 356, which is a whole other story. So this is your version but, of getting the watch, like after you're, after you've been at the company long enough, <laughs> instead of getting the watch, you get to drive a 917? Yeah, instead of getting a cheap gold watch, I got a, I got, <laughs> got an I, experience I got a, instead. I got an experience, which I'll, you know, the older I'm getting, the more I value the experiences over stuff. And um, basically what happened on 917 was I got an invite that blew my mind. The email showed up. Hey, we're going to Sears Point and we'd like to invite you to experience the following cars. And I was reading down the list of cars, you know, it's like 996 GT3 and 959 and, you know, America Roadster, which I hadn't driven. That was one I hadn't driven. Most of the things on there I'd driven. And then I got to 917K and it had an asterisk, of course. And, uh, you know, $22 million, $20 million car. And um, so below it, with the asterisk, it says for, for qualified journalists only or qualified drivers who have experience with uh, vintage race cars or something. I can't remember the exact language. So I made a call to Were Atlanta. Like, is that me? Did you think that was you? <laughs> you were like, yeah, that's yeah, me. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, what was crazy is, I mean, I sat there in my seat and, and I always go back to, you know, this 914 question leader driver from 15 or 16 years old on uh, i thought what's crazy is i think i actually do qualify by the letter of this sentence you know <laughs> now whether or not they'll agree is another matter so i so i i reached out and said hey um i see that this is open to drivers with experience and sufficient experience in vintage race cars you know i've done two was it three or four, three or four Rensport reunions in, in vintage race cars um, and other races in Monterey historics and some different things. Uh, would it be possible for me to drive this 917? And, you know, and then you grit your teeth quietly on the phone and, and wait. And, you know, Frank Leisman at Porsche said, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll have to double check. It'll ultimately be up to the Porsche museum. And I wasn't expectant on this because after all, it's a 917. After all, it's, you know, it, it's a $20 million thing uh, or whatever the price is. So I wasn't, almost I didn't the price almost doesn't matter because it's so, it's so astronomical. It's like, it might as well be a billion dollars for all you care. Right. <laughs> correct. Correct. Right. So, so I, 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 I didn't ask expectantly. I asked, you know, do you think it would be possible? Um, because that's something I've never driven. And frankly, I'd already kind of resigned myself that I never would drive, you know, after after the whole debacle with a journalist in England who was accused of over revving one right. and, and then the owner went after the journalist and uh, I think, a, I think took the guy's house basically. Um, yeah, and there was a lot of, there was a lot of controversy around that because the accused was a, apparently in it from all reports, an exceptional driver, really good driver, not, not a journalist pretending to be a good driver, but a, a really good driver, a teacher and, and um, apparently it was known that the shift linkage was a little wonky on the car. And of course, any old Porsche, that, ha ha, that's you know, not so surprising. Um, so, you know, th that kind of case, though, makes you wonder, well, what, well, what's the knock on? Will I ever get to drive? And then there's the other side. It's a 917. So I kind of figured I I'm not going to get to drive one of those. Like, I'm OK with that. You don't even spend much time on it. 
And so I waited. And as the day was coming, I still didn't have an answer on whether I was going to be a go or not. I knew the person who was going to make the decision at, at the museum. And he's a great, great person who I've known for years and actually digs triple zero. And what I love is his favorite part of triple zero was outsmart, which is the thing that we cover where Porsche got outsmarted on something is over coffee. He's like, you know what my favorite part is, is this outsmart. It's like, really? That's your favorite part? The one page thing where we say that somebody outsmarted Porsche. <laughs> and to me, that was a measure of his intellect and his character is, is none of those things is a measure of his, of his, of, of his personality or his perspective. I really dug it. We had a fun conversation. But I didn't know what his answer would be on this 917 thing. And um, and so as the day approached, uh, it was going to rain. The day that I was likely to be out on track was going to rain. And anybody who's been to Sears Point knows that it ain't Laguna uh, nowadays. It, it's, it's not, it doesn't have FIA runoff. It will not qualify to be an FIA course. There's significant uh, barriers all over the place. They don't typically let motorcycles go full force there because it's flat out deadly all over the place. It's uh, concrete walls everywhere. And, um, and so I've only driven all the years. I've driven it many, many times. I mean, rewind to that email. Can you imagine getting an email that says you can drive these cars? And by the way, it's a, a track 15 minutes from your house. You know, it's your home track. This is Sonoma, it's just good, so everybody knows this is Sonoma raceway now, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They yeah. call it Sonoma race. Those of us here in the Bay Area will always call it Sears point. So Sonoma raceway, for a while, it was called Infinian Raceway. And um, 15 minutes from where I live, in my home track, the first track I ever went to a race to go see uh, a 240SX race car run against Huffaker Minis. And, you know, a lot of memories there for me. And so, but also like a really easy place to kill a car or yourself. And, oh, by the way, 917, the only thing in front of your toes is an oil cooler, not a very big one. And so, you know, and paper thin fiberglass. Uh, so the day looks like it's going to rain. And I went up there to buy some new safety gear because driving a desk, I haven't been running as much as so some of my stuff was out of date. And um, I go up to the pro shop and here's Motor Trend driving by uh, with the 917 chasing a, a camera car. And it was the only dry day of the week. It was guaranteed. It was, I think it was Tuesday, Monday or Tuesday. Day one, day two, day three, and I was on day three. And so um, so I thought, you know, those turkeys, they, they get to drive, and I'm, that's my car. Like, I'm <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like I'm not going to get to drive. Um, and so, you know, I went home, and then the next afternoon I drove up for dinner with everybody in Sonoma and um, kind of the night before festivities. And uh, I saw Sam Smith, uh, who's a – you know, old friend in the business and writer and we've done some work together and, and compare notes off. And I was like, did you drive a 917? And he's like, no, he's like, you know, uh, caution, how would put it better part of valor, all that. And so uh, it was, you know, just pouring rain on, on Tuesday or Wednesday, day two was just pouring rain. And so um, I kind of written it off and I was thinking, well, what can we do for triple zero with the 917 if we can't drive it? Like, what can we do that's interesting that nobody, there weren't very many outlets invited, but you always can't really ask people to pay what we ask people to pay for triple zero and give them the same stuff. And, you know, how do you create a great performance, you know, the theater that you built? And, um, and so I thought, well, you know, I don't see anything for the magazine out of this, but maybe we could create a cool 50th anniversary reprise of the shots, the mind blowing shots of the 914 
and the 917 together, there's two of them. There's one at Spa and one at um, Solitude Ring, where you have a nine, the factory put a, probably von Hanstein or somebody put a 914 and a 917K next to each other. And the 914 looks like a, looks like an SUV, looks like a school bus next to a 917. And I've always loved those shots because they're kind of like when you see a Fiera next to a Countach, you sort of can't believe that this thing that lives so large in your mind, this Countach or this 917 is actually that small. Right. It's so legendary. Whereas this car that you're ready to kind of uh, flick off of the freeway with a finger, uh, like a X19 or a 914 or a Fiat Abarth or something, is a tiny car in your in your mind and is a tiny car, and yet it looks huge next to a 917. And so I thought, well, I happen to have a 914 that looks a lot like the car in those photos. Besides a couple of sins in my youth, it, it, it pretty much is a carbon copy of the cars they used for those photos. So I thought, well, if it rains out, what we'll do is we'll ask if we can go shoot the 917 with a 914 as a 50th year reprise of those photos, those famous photos. And we'll see if we can improve on the angle of them because those angles are a little high. And if you want to emphasize just how low the 917 is, you get lower for the photo. So I drove the 914 up the next morning. And we had a bunch of bunch of uh, contributors there. We had about 10 people there for that day. To, we created about three or four feature stories out of the day. Uh, one with the Cayenne Rally Trans-Siberia by Lizette Bond and another uh, on Atwood by Eric Gustafson. Uh, we had somebody working just on art photography um, which we have yet to release. We probably will as art prints. Um, and so we, I spent my day working to make sure everybody had what they needed for those things. And I also spent my day figuring, we'll just go get these photos of the two cars together with Lisa Linka. She shot those. And I probably won't get to drive the 917. But of course I had all my gear. And as the day went on, it dried out, but it looked like rain was coming in. And it was touch and go with rain. But I finally got my shot and it was time to suit up. And so I went and suited up. And uh, I felt like an imposter when I came back out um, in all my gear to drive this thing. Here's Atwood nearby. Here's Long nearby. So uh, feeling like a fraud, I went over and talked to those two before getting in the thing. And and um, Did they give you any I advice? Already, yeah, well, I said, you know, anything I need to know before I go out there. And, and, and Pat basically said, look, it's going to push. Be ready. It's good. You know, there's just not going to be a lot of grip in the front in the nose and you know that's not terrifying at all because um, <laughs> there's, there's plenty of concrete walls to hit around there and uh and understeer right into uh, across wet grass and downhill and off camber turns like 4a um and so anyways uh i went out and we did first we did some car-to-car photography with the 914 and the 917 and atwood drove the 917 for that and I drove my 914 for that. And that was surreal. You know, that was surreal to drive this, you know, voted hooptiest car in my high school yearbook next to a 917 on track in the rain next to Richard Atwood, who won Le Mans one uh, 50 years earlier. Exactly. Just about exactly. You know. uh, 49 and a half years earlier, he won Le Mans, one of these things. Um, it, it was a, that was totally surreal. And then we came back in after a few laps, two, two, three laps doing that. And I got, it was time to get in the 917. And so David Donahue was my pace driver. And that was also part of Road and Track's decision. I understood it. It was like, you know, they didn't want to go out with a pace lap. If, if They said if it was raining, you had to have a pace car in front of you. 
but I kind of thought about it the night before and I was like, is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? Do I say yes? Do I say no? If they let you, and I decided, no, it's not going to happen. So I slept really well the night before. I right, slept why, so why well. do something halfway, right? Why would you right. want to experience something like that? And not right. be able so to I totally, res- yeah, I totally respected road and track's decision. Woke up in the morning having slept really well because I'd already told myself it wasn't going to happen. And um, had I told myself that it was going to happen or could happen, I wouldn't have slept a wink. I woke up with this ding thought and the thought was, hey, wait a second. You know, you could, who cares if you, you, you drive it. If, it? if it's pouring and they'll let you, you drive it. And if that means you do pit speeds all the way around the entire track at like 30 miles an hour, that's what you do. Because how many times will you get to drive a 917? Right. Even at 30 miles an hour, you go out, whatever happens, you go out. If they'll let you, you go out. And so then I started thinking, I was like, well, hold on a second. So Donahue's my, my driver, my, my pace driver, and he's in a 992 Carrera 4S. And I started kind of thinking about, I was like, well, what's going to be faster around a, a wet Sears point, even with a pro driver in it, a, a, a 917K uh, with no aids and all the risk and all the value or a 992C4S um, with, you know, PS, PSM, all-wheel drive, Porsche traction management, all this stuff. I started to wonder, it's like, I wonder if, like, you put Atwood and Donahue or Atwood and Hurley or whoever in both and had them race. I really wonder if the 917 would be faster around here in these conditions, you know, and it, was, it wasn't just wet, it was also muddy. So it was like the track had filth on it. So it was pretty slippery. So we go out the first time and I wore a helmet first time. They gave you the option of not wearing a helmet because I'm tall and my head was pretty much against the roof. And I went out with the helmet. It was awful. Just awful trying to sit in there at 6'2". And um, driving position is terrible. It, it's it's uh, like full of recline. And um, we go out and I'm suitably terrified. You know, I'm like get out on the way up to turn two i'm just thinking what are you doing out here what are you doing you do not belong out here in this thing and we went so slow like i i don't know if we went over 50 60 miles an hour because it was just awful conditions and some corners were just there were lakes and and donahue was totally making fun of me i mean i've run with donahue over the years as well as he's been an instructor and you know I've chased him into corners at like 170 plus miles an hour with him leading. And so, you know, there's a certain level of trust with both of us, both ways. And he kept kind of getting away from me, but I was just not taking the bait because I was just, <laughs> I was borderline very uncomfortable. And, um, and, and, you know, it's almost to make fun of me. He would just drive right through the straight, straight through on the line on puddles. They were more like lakes. Like he'd just go, he'd stay on the line and go right through the lake. And I'd look at the lake and be like, yeah, I weigh half. You know, right. I weigh about half as much and I have, I, this thing will just, this thing will not go through that lake. So I'd have to like slow down and go around the lake. It was pretty pitiful that first lap, you know? And, um, we went around again and coming through the carousel, which is a long left-hand downhill that, that empties out onto the drag strip at Sears point. And, uh, it's one of the places you can really dig into the throttle in a car if, if you're a little worried about the car. And I get down there in second gear and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like devil on one shoulder. Oh, do it, do it. Now's your chance. You can floor a 917, do it, do it. And then the other devils or the angels like, uh, yeah, you do that. It's going to pivot left and go straight into the concrete wall with the nose. Yep. 
and of course, I didn't know that the angel was right, but I was kind of, you know, so I didn't, I didn't, I, I stayed like three quarter throttle, got up to like, I don't know, 6,500, um, 7,000 RPM. I, I, I'd have to think about that, what, what the RPM was pretty high up in the RPM, but three quarter throttle. So the next time around, I came through there and I short shifted the third and actually got full throttle um, in third and probably got up into the 5,000s, maybe, maybe 6,000. I, I have to think back to that too. Um, but we went back in and, you know, I think they were like, you know, how are you doing? I was like, would you, and it, would you like to get rid of Armin Berger, the guy that was in charge of the car? So would you like to get rid of the helmet? I was like, yes. So I got rid of the helmet and that changed everything. We went back out and, um, the fear factor going up to turn two changed into this maniacal laughter that literally lasted all the way to turn four. Like this just, it just changed from, I could hear myself laughing uh, all the way for several corners. Like it changed from what am I doing out here to this is amazing. And uh, the the real surprise also was the pace picked up a lot. Uh, Lizette was riding with David and David mentioned it later too. The pace picked up, still not fast, but quite a bit. Um, I became more comfortable. And, um, and I started to notice that, you know, we all hear a 917 go by and they sound like these guttural things. You know, these... 4.55, 5.4 liter, these guttural big engine cars. They sound just brutal. But when you're in them, they don't sound like that. They sound like a they sound like two 911, two, two 2.2 liter 911 S MFI engines uh connected, which is kind of what they are. So they sing. They sing. They're all high pitched in and engine noise. And they sound incredible. It was the first Porsche I've driven since the Carrera GT V10 that was on a match for that car for oral delights, like indoors 917K, the engine noise is banana. And it's worth searching, uh, searching out the video that James May did, I think for um, recently driving the same 917, I believe. And they, they got some good indo- in interior sound of it. Uh, it's incredible. So we went out one more time. I came back in, we came back in. And they say, you know, I said, if, if it's all possible, because we still had time, triple uh, zero had a certain amount of time. Each each outlet, each media outlet got a certain amount of time that was dedicated. It was its own time on track. I mean, talk about dreams, right? So I said, if possible, I'd like to go out one more time. Could I go out one more time? I just didn't want to get out of it. And for me, that's the measure of a great Porsche. There's a lot of Porsches. Like they're, they're all great. None of them are Chevy citations. But, <laughs> but, but you know, it... it the ones that really stand apart are the ones I just don't want to get out of. And I didn't expect that with the 917. I've driven a number of race cars where I was like that 996 on the, on the black rock. I was like, Nope, if I never do that again, I'm fine. Uh, I, I didn't want to get out of this car. I just wanted to stay in. And, um, what was really cool is the, the team from PCNA, um, Andrew and Abby and others, they went to work. And they got on the radio. Can we send them out one more time? Like they really made this, they set a stage, they put a performance on. And uh, I felt, I was just deeply thankful. So I got to go out one more time. And that was really important because on that one, the third time out, third session, these weren't long sessions, but the third session, the, the 917 became a Porsche, it just became a, a 911 or a 914 or a 912 um, 356, you could feel all of that. The way that they, the Porsche engineers tried to get the, the um, control weights similar, 
Uh, I was driving with fingertips instead of death grip. You know, I was going around four and five and six uh, with fingertips on that old Momo. Um, and I was comfortable to shift it and, and, and uh, use throttle, use brakes. So the shift linkage um, wasn't all wacky. So that would kind of no, <laughs> no. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't as nice as you know, let's say a GT4. But it was. It was. It was. Um, no, everything worked. And 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 uh, you know, my only regret, of course, was the weather. I would have. I would have loved to have had a more grip where I could have played a little more. Um, but you know, it 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 was heartbreaking on that front. It was a little heartbreaking in, on the front of. Um, that car, I believe the, the nose is high to get it in and out of shows and it drives like it. It drives like it looks. That particular 917, um, which is um, 017-035 or 015-035. I have to go back and look. Um, it, it Those cars, you can't, if you damage the nose of one of those, you it's big time fiberglass work and paint. It's not like, you know, some modern car where you just change the splitter. Right. And that, that particular one sits nose high and you can often tell how a car drives by the way it sits. Like if, if, when they're nose high, they drive a certain way. When they're nose low, they also drive a certain way. And this car was nose high. And, you know, you can maybe compensate for that by trail braking pretty hard on the way into a turn, but I wasn't going to be trail braking that car on that track in the wet into any corner hard. Right. So, you know, I, I would have loved to have tried that car with a little less ride height in the front or, uh, better still, a little less ride height in the front and a dry track. Well, there's always more but, time. There's 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 more nine seventeens to be driven. I don't know. I you know I'm I'm not counting on that. Like the you know I I, I just find myself thankful that that happened at all. Um, Do you think Porsche as maybe, they move onwards into this EV stuff and the and the, there's more of it and more of it comes out and then in 2023 we have you know the 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 world endurance championship going all hybrid electric everything like that do you think they're going to start relying less on giving people the opportunity to drive stuff like this as it becomes less and less important to because it's just you can't what's the what are you going to write about the comparison between a, a 917 and the and a Taycan race car for example like what what does that comparison even mean do, do you you're think, saying is it less relevant is like, it less not the car the car as itself isn't less relevant as a historical item but does it become less relevant as a contrast or comparison piece to new things because when you were when all those cars that were there are all somewhat related to each other right they're all the same family and i feel like everything that's happened over the last several years as we move move forward away from the combustion engine it's we're not the same family anymore everything is the foundation is different everything before that before the you know even the brand new 99991 uh, gt2 rs club sport for example that car is still built on the shoulders of everything that came before it we can we can follow the lineage back and look all the way back and say okay you know we can go all the way back to like 906 whatever you want to do but with this stuff, it doesn't really stand on the shoulders of anything anymore. So is the comparison even relevant? So I'm going to challenge you on that a little bit because it's where I was a while back. Um, but it's funny because what interests me more about the Porsche story than anything is, is I mean, look, as with your writing, you hope that you look back on your first piece that was published 10 or 20 or 30 years later and say, oh, you know, man, I was pretty juvenile then. Well, or I was pretty, you know, new. I was, I was, I was, it was early. I was on this early path. Studying Porsche for 20 something years now, I'm still a student, by no means an expert, but hopefully there's better questions and better perspectives. And that's a, a lot of what Triple Zero is about. It's not about 
even if we focus on one car, it's really what I'm interested in is learning the perspective of the of the arc of the total arc. What Okay, you know, we can't make a magazine for 968 people. We can't make a magazine just for ST fanatics, 911 ST fanatics. But we can make a magazine that that helps them understand how the 968 fits into the 993 and how the 993 answers, uh, there were 996 answers, things that weren't quite ready yet for the 993. The 996 is, I like that arc. And the Tycon's an interesting one because you know, you mentioned all those cars that were there that day. Well, there were two Tycons there. And there's a young guy named Chase Blackburn who helps with our social media. Um, I met him. His dad is kind of an enthusiast who has a really good, had a really good 993 across the street when we moved into our first place um, up here, my wife and I. And we got to know Chase when he was 10. Well, Chase is now a college student. And uh, Pete Ritter, one of our, one of our, um, one of our advisors on Triple Zero, and a total Porsche fanatic took Chase for a ride in a in a Taycan. Chase isn't old enough to qualify to drive this stuff, and I don't really know that he's got the experience yet to be off in a car from Porsche with triple zero uh, as a guarantor. And you know, Chase is growing, and Chase is a college student now, freshman, and so um, at this point. And so Pete Ritter takes Chase out for a ride in the Taycan. Ritter was curious. He's a GT3 owner, a Spider owner, a 993 owner, a lot of track experience. And those two came back with these huge smiles. And it made me happy because seeing Chase, this young guy who's kind of a car paparazzi, is like one of these social media uh, car paparazzi types. And and he's, he's brand agnostic. He likes all things. Porsche is just one that he likes. And you should have seen Chase's smile. And the other side of that is, so I think it is relatable. I think it does fit into the picture. Uh, but the other side of that is the Taycan does stand on the shoulders of what's come before. You know, it's it's not just marketing speak. There's there's legitimate, I don't know how well they do uh, at communicating. So I think they, they, they work at it for sure, but there's legitimacy there. You know, the, 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 the Cayenne, Porsche Traction Management out of the Cayenne definitely helped the 997 Turbo. And, and that development, which definitely helped the 901 Turbo and the all-wheel drive systems and, and PTM and other things that are going on, those things can be traced back to the Dakar racers, the 964s, um, and and they, they can be traced. Some of those lessons of all-wheel drive management, you can trace it one generation next, 964 to 993. To, which was which was a which was a simplified version of 964 because 964 was overwrought. Um, and then 996 Turbo, which heavily depends on the lessons of 993 Turbo. And you can just keep going up that chain. So um, the Taycan absolutely borrows from that. The Taycan absolutely borrows from the 919 program, which absolutely borrows from the hamster, uh, as a lot of us like to call it, the GT3R hybrid. Um, there's definitely a, a, an arc and these things do stand on the shoulders of what was in in ways, not always. And there's the cynical part of me that can get into that, get it, we can get into that too. Uh, because there, of course, you can't look at anything really with long enough without having some cynicism and some macabre sense of humor. Um, but no, the Tycon definitely stands on the shoulders. I would argue that it definitely stands on the shoulders of what has been. 
what it opens up is what happens when you when you change the mode of power. What happens when you when you change uh, from engine to motor, and from uh, fuels to to electricity? And those are valid questions. It almost seems like the story is being written by a different person, you know, because you kind of relate it to like how a story is written and with the foundation, everything. It almost seems like they just hired a new person to write the story of Porsche for me sometimes, you know, it just doesn't doesn't feel this. It just doesn't, it seemed like till recently, everybody, they really, really relied on the heritage of things. And now it seems like everything's very forward looking, you know, it's very, we're looking into the future. And I just, I feel like they don't value it as much as they used to. It's funny you say that because I triple zero at some level. Part of our goal is to examine Porsche as as effectively as art, or as a not art in the sense of what you hang on your wall or or make as a possession. That that interests me a lot less. Um, art as art in engineering, art in design, um, you know the shapes, all this, the materials, all this, and then of course the people, people who do this. I want to know the Tony Hatters and Grant Larsons and. Uh, there's so many others I could name. Uh, probably shouldn't go down that road, but the, I, I want to learn the, the Metzgers. I mean, I, it's hard to avoid going down that road, the Colds, the Cleese, the, all these people. So, and of course the Porsche family at some level. And so to your point about, we just did a story actually on Ferry Porsche because I haven't seen enough written about him lately. Um, and we talked about what he was interested in. Guess what he wasn't interested in? He wasn't interested in heritage. Mm. And so it's almost... Is that because there wasn't much of one yet? <laughs> I think partly, yeah. yeah I mean, but was... I think also he was forward-looking. He was forward-looking. He, he wanted to build things that, that took forward. I mean, there's a lot of quotes that have been misattributed to him that are just BS. But there's one that I think is accurate when he's saying, you know, what, what's your favorite? And he said, we haven't built it yet. You know, it, that's a business person speaking, but it's also... That's also, I think there's truth in that. He was curious about where they could go. And so to your point about heritage, I think it's an interesting thing. I, I find the least interesting aspect of Porsche is one that is only rearward looking. If if the story for me ends at a certain point, and I have my fears, like the 992 is not, uh, the 992 has me worried that my, 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 end of the 9-11, my personal, not professional, not review, but I worry that my road with the 9-11 kind of ends around 997-991. The 992 makes some changes that I get why they did it, but it's not for me. It's like it's for somebody else. And I worry about that. It's not a toy anymore. It's a car. You know, for me, Porsches were always toys that you could use as cars. They were just utilitarian enough that you could use them as real cars in the Berkeley Hills and to go to Home Depot or whatever it is that you're up to. Um, and I've done that. You know, I've picked up lumber, like 16 foot lumber in a box drum, put it through the roll bar. And people gave me some very strange looks on the freeway. Um, when they become just cars, I'm a lot less interested because there's lots of cars. I want right. toys that, that can be used to me. That's where the passion is. So I have my own reservations and worries like where is this all going but i think we've almost to your challenge about there wasn't much heritage back then have we over heritage over heritaged porsche 
yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? Of course. And, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and I got to say that that gets less interesting to me. You know, if someone said you can only do all we're interested in is air cooled or all we're interested in is front engine water cooled or all we're interested in, or I'm a 914 guy through and through, right? But if all I'm interested in 914, and there's nothing wrong with that. My favorite forum is only concerned with 914s, 914world.com. And I think it's one of the friendliest, coolest forums there is. Least pretentious, like down to earth, just wonderful people, really wonderful people. But as much as I want to go there to learn about 914 stuff, and I still go there and I still learn things about 914s there, um, I'm intellectually, I, I would that's too small a bucket for me to work out of, you know, right. Porsche, Porsche. I, I, I want to see what they're doing with the Taycan translated into something like a 356 speedster, but not a 356 speedster because you can already buy one of those or a replica of one of those. I want to know what is a Lotus Elise, you know, a Lotus Elise was a modern interpretation of a, of a, of a simple uh, tool. It was, a, it was a modern interpretation of, you can say a Europa or a 914 or whatever you want to call it, but basically it was a modern interpretation of a small, simple, lightweight, mid-engine sports car. And what makes a Lotus Elise fabulous is, is that it is a modern interpretation. And so I, I want to see what's, what could happen if, I mean, in my, in my 40s, how often do I get to go for a five or seven hour drive? The answer is not very often. How often do I get to go for a two-hour drive? Not very often. Chris, you and I went for a drive right out of the back door of the office here. Seven minutes from here, there's a great road or a pretty good road. And then at least lots of great roads. That's more likely as a use case for me for my 914 or my 911. If I get, to, if I get time to go drive one of my cars, it's those roads that you and I drove on more often than not. Well, guess what? I could take an electric sports car and do that. I'm curious. Like everyone wrote... Everyone who wrote about the 918 talked about, oh, I'd like to try this without the hybrid motor, you know, and I thought, well, you can try that a trillion ways. You know, you go get a Mura, go get a Countach, go get a Carrera GT, go get a you know, 512BB, go get, you know, Testarossa. We have made a million mid-engine supercars. And, but the, all the cars that you just mentioned have, they have grit, right? I. And, yeah. and there's passion to be felt because of those. Cars. I don't know if it's because it's in hindsight. I don't know if it's a nostalgia thing. I don't know if we, you know, look back at, and we're like, you said, over heritaging, heritageizing things, new word. And <laughs> is that, are we going to be able to do any of that? When you talk about being able to drive an electric car up and down these, these roads by your house, are you going to do that with, uh, with one of these cars and, and, and feel something and feel passion? Well, that's well, okay. So, so, the, if, look, if you give me the keys to a Carrera GT or a 918 and I have to keep it and drive it, I'm going to take a Carrera GT every time. Every time. The 918 isn't a car for me. It's a much better car than the Carrera GT, but the passion for me is the Carrera GT. There's yeah, just so much better passion. better mean? What is better? What is just because it's more progress? What's better? Why I, is it better? I spent, I spent a week with both, and I had a qualifier there. It was as a car. So I spent a week with both of those in San Francisco and the Carrera GT, I had to reorder where I drove in the city because of the hills and the nose and no nose lift and everything else. And um, it was, you know, a scene wherever you went in that thing because it you know, made an incredible racket. And it's just, you know, everything about that car was high strung. It 
blood pressure up. Everything about the Carrera GT was an experience. It was a it was an A to A car. You could only drive point A to point A. The 918 had nose lift, had Bluetooth, had an automatic transmission. I got stuck in an hour and a half traffic to go 10 blocks in a 918 uphill. And if I had been in the Carrera GT, I would have been ready to murder somebody. <laughs> and and in the 918, I was I was literally sitting there having Bluetooth phone calls the same as I would in a, a Mercedes C-Class. Like it was no different uh, other than sitting in a sport bucket seat. And, you know, that's like anathema to probably most of the people listening to this. You're like, well, that's not a good measure of a car. And I agree. And I agree. <laughs> but, but it was a better car. It was a much better product for most of those owners. Um, most of those buyers are probably happier in the 918 in a number of ways. I think it was a better looking car than the CGT as much as I love the CGT. There's a number of things, the CGT styling where they were rushed and they were rushing and they weren't as resolved as they are in the 918. Like the 918 is actually longer exterior size than a Carrera GT, but it drives smaller and it looks smaller than a Carrera GT. So well, that was all a car that they had is, to get right. It's as it like, as it was, oh, it was future looking. They had to get that car. Oh right. yeah. But here's the, Forget all that stuff. The most passionate moment I had in the career, the 918, I drove it up the North Coast. I did the little loop that we used to do for everything from 9934 and a lot of the classics. And that's where the Carrera GT became my favorite Porsche of all time was up there on that driving loop, far north of California, farther northern end of California. Great roads. And, um, you know, it sounds like you've got a Judd V10 behind you. You're making these full, you know, America Le Mans sounds, but you're the one making them. And, uh, Went up there in the 918 to try to duplicate that experience and see if I could be as passionate. It was as, as passionate, a spiritual experience as the CGT was. And you know what I found was I couldn't. I, I kept trying to go over these roads and I thought, well, maybe I'm not in the right mood. Maybe I'm not this. Maybe I'm not that. It wasn't that. And then as the sun was going down and I was coming down 101, I thought about one road I hadn't done, which was one of my favorites in the CGT. And I was like, oh, it's getting all dark. Do you want to be out there? And It'll be dark on your way back. And I thought, no, you got to go do it. You got to answer this for the readers and for yourself. So went out there and I was on this road. I know this road really, really well. And to my amazement, as a technical achievement, that car could put all 944 pound feet of torque down out of a second gear turn on a road that didn't have perfect surfaces. And yeah, it might have been mitigating some of that power, but you could you could achieve full throttle and second gear out of a turn on, on a tiny little road a great road. Uh, but here was the thing, your survival instinct kicked in. The moment I achieved full throttle, I was like, and if you stay in, even with these brakes and regen and everything else in these tires, you will go off the next clip. Like, and I realized you couldn't get into a rhythm with it because it was just too fast. It was just, it was a technical, it was a pointless exercise on the road. And by the time you found a road big enough to use that thing, your speeds were such that you should go to jail. Like you just you know, put your hands out for cuffs. And, but here's the funny moment of the 918 test was earlier the day before we brought a nine. Our curiosity was not, is it fast? We did this for issue zero of triple zero. Um, our curiosity was, is it fun? You know, that we know the 918 is fast. We know it holds the ring record. We know, but is it a good sports car? Like, is it, to me, a sports car should elicit emotions. Otherwise, you may as well drive a Camry. And so we went up there and we took the polar opposite. The most modern thing, we didn't take an old car to try to compare it to a 918. 
we took the most modern spider we could get, which was a, a 987.2 Boxster spider. So very simple car, 320 horsepower, you know, lightweight, simplicity, very analog car. And at one point, the owner of that car, um, uh, Pete Ritter, was chasing me through this road. We were racing, but you get a pace. You know what I'm talking about. Like you run at a certain pace. And I got into this zone with the 918 where my goal was to not use the engine. Uh, to not use the V8, to see how quickly could I go without engaging the engine. Because if you push too far on the throttle, the engine comes on. It's like two-thirds-ish. And so I was just trying to go very quickly down this road without using the engine. And um, it was the best driving in that car I did. And so while everybody was saying, oh, I want to try this without the hybrid gear, it would be really a nicer car without the hybrid gear, I was like, I want to try this without the V8. I'm curious to try this because... I heard stuff I've never heard before. I Did they hamstring themselves? Did they just because they they figured if they made it all electric too fast, people wouldn't wouldn't adopt it? They had to have that there, you know, to to make it palatable no, for people at the time I mean, that it I, came out. That's a great question. Who knows? I can't speak for what they thought, but no, I think I think they were still in hybrid. Was all when I spoke to Porsche engineers, they would say we don't view hybrid as a as an end all solution. We view it as a bridge. So there's your question is spot on. Um, I think also they weren't ready to go full EV for a lot of reasons. Um, I think they also pr probably looking at a bigger perspective than we are in terms of they saw the connections between um, the connections from, let's say, the GT3R hybrid race car to where they wanted to go with 919. They saw the marketing connections. But also, you know, they all, they had a little experience with Cayenne Hybrid, and they were looking at different things. There's and still so, a wait-and-see market for a lot of manufacturers at that time, too, I think. Oh, oh, for sure, for sure. So, I, But I think what interested them, and from gathering and talking with Frank uh, Wallitzer and some others, yeah, they wanted to see if they could go around the ring faster with a hybrid car with all-wheel drive. And, and, and um, you know, they were very anti-weight. People don't realize how hard they worked on the weight of that car, the if you order aluminum trim in a 918, it's actually aluminum plated carbon fiber. Because <laughs> I, was like, well, um, I was like, why did you do this? Like, oh, you know, aluminum's too heavy. And um, I mean, they were that hardcore about getting weight out of that thing. And it weighs like 36, 3,700 pounds or something. Again, don't quote me on that. Go look it up. But we're just having a podcast. But um you know, they really sweated the weight on that car way more than on the RS 2.7 that all of us hold so high. Right. You know, RS 2.7 is like a Model T uh, in terms of not technology, but in terms of effort. By comparison, they're working way harder now well, the bar to was sweat out the pounds. The bar was yeah. way lower than it is now. You got it. You got it. I mean, they're shaving carpet. They're shaving the back off a of carpet these days to try to save, you know, 0.8 kilogram or something or 0.2 kilogram so it's you know people don't I, I find this stuff fascinating so you say like oh is it only i i dearly hope that i'm still engaged and interested in whatever where the 992 is going and whatever is coming next with the sports cars because the four doors aren't my thing like the four doors they're incredible products but that's not where i that's not core identity of of my interest with porsche so I look at that and I say, okay, so everyone thinks 964s are super cool right now. And 964s, I mean, you used to not be able to sell one for, for $15,000. You know, like, you, like 
the glass headlights alone were enough to be like, how can this only be this cheap? And now they're extremely expensive. But you know, no one talks about the fact that a 991.2 is lighter or as light as a 964 C2. I mean, think about it. Right. That's that's completely so what what floats my boat is the idea of taking all the lessons they've learned on these on these sort of from the 986, 996 up through now. Could all of that be applied to a light, simple electric sports car with maybe with straight cut gears because you know like a gt3 cup if you or gt3 rsr if you ever get to drive one of those it's not the engine noise that you're going to fall in love with it's the straight cut gears when you hear that on an alms feed or imsa feed that's not the engine it's not the flat six it's the straight cut gears so what could like a, a less helical or, or straight cut gear be like? You know, I was talking to somebody in engineer at Porsche. I was like, why don't you guys do straight cut gears in an electric car and like give me a clutch pedal? And he's like, yeah, electric cars don't need gears. And I was like, yeah, but, but I do. no one needs sports. <laughs> well, and, and, and I, I looked, yeah, exactly. I looked back and he's like, he's like an electric car doesn't need, doesn't need gears. And I said, yeah, and the world doesn't need sports cars. And he like smiled and nodded his head. You know, it, it's, I want to know what's a Lotus Elise, what's a Boxster, what's a what's a what? What's the next thing that's done in a modern way that is emotional? That Can is the most exciting thing. About we've talked about that. Yeah, so we've many talked times. about that too. Someone's someone at some point will come out with something like that because there are enough people that want it, right? There's enough people yeah. that that want that. I don't know if Honda's going to make an SI. I don't care who makes it. I want a boiled down version. Right now, it's it's all this futurology. We're in the future. Every electric car's got everything, right? It's got, you know, Netflix and farting sounds and, and you know, <laughs> right. it takes you anywhere you want to go with a 20-foot screen. And the new S-Class Mercedes has more LCDs than a stadium, like all this stuff. But at some point, we're going to have to reach it where it's like, okay, well, what what is a... What does a GTI look like with an electric motor that's small and basic? With cr- maybe give me some crank windows. I can well, do it myself. I swear, yeah. please. <laughs> I mean, okay. So let's step back and paint this picture a little bit. Like, a, like I don't want one. I want like the good old days when you had Fiat 124s and 914s and 911s and you know all these different Dinos. And we don't want one or two. We want like twelve or fifteen of them yeah, to choose from: choice. front drive, rear drive, like all these things. But okay, let's paint a different picture. Let's say it only has to go 80 or 100 miles range so it can be a lot lighter in the battery. It's rear-wheel drive because you can do whatever you want with that. It's rear or mid-motored, so the weight, whatever weight is you know, placed in the right place for us weirdos who like stuff back there, and a, like a light front end. And what if the interior was was like an old S2000 or, or, or a current, more recent Spartan, like no stuff. And by the way, it doesn't have to have a sport mode to like, you know, it doesn't have a sport mode to um, to get the best performance because you're worried about emissions or economy targets. Like, what if it literally is a steering wheel, two or three pedals? I would like a shifter, even if it's only two speeds uh, or three speeds. Um, you know, w- what could that look like? What, 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 what could it, I view electric as like, it will never replace my 914. It will never replace my 911, but it could be a really cool and. You know, it could be a really cool and for something that, oh, I don't have to wait until the oil warms up to have fun. Like, I don't have to, you know, it's like I can just get in this thing and 
and go someplace and come back. And most of my drives, in my 40s, I don't get to do five and seven hour drives as much as I did when I was in my 20s. Well, hopefully we have passionate people at the manufacturers that want enough to bring that to us as time goes on. You know, it's... It's, it's partially their responsibility. Everybody always blames it on the consumer, but the consumer will will adapt and, and want things when they're presented with them as good. Yeah. If they don't exist yeah. yet and they're made and said, here, look what we've built for you. Well, look I guess, look well, at the first Boxster. Yeah, exactly. Well, at least Kevin Costner would say, if they if you build it, they will come. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, just yeah, I mean, look, look at the first 986, year-long waiting lists. Yeah. There was nothing like it in the market before it arrived. Right. And... You know, people, they were everywhere here in California when they were new, everywhere. So, you know, if you make something excellent, and the first Boxster really was excellent, you know, people poo-poo that car, those things are the bargain of the century. You I know, can tell you right cheaper. now, if they had a back seat, I would have one because they are so oh, cheap. Yeah. They are so cheap. They're so cheap. And those have aluminum monoblock four-piston calipers at all four corners. It's either magnesium or forged magnesium top frame. Um, six cylinder engine, the two five sounds insane through the mid range. Um, you know, do they have their rough spots and, and liability? Sure. Doesn't every other Porsche right. I mean, get real, you know? So I, I, the story has to continue. Otherwise I'm less interested. It's only heritage focused. Uh, that doesn't mean I'm not heritage focused. I mean, I'd say 70% of what we do here is probably 70 to 80, 90% in some issues is heritage focused, not new product. But I'm very interested in the new, I'm very interested in where it goes. My worry, if I have a worry, is that they now have six model lines, give or take, and four of them are four slash five door cars. And two of them are sports cars. So they've got four four door model lines and two sports car lines. And the two sports car lines are effectively part shared platform right and my worry for them is how long in the environment of emissions and targets and fuel economy and social acceptance can they keep producing cars that i'm interested in that is the challenge i don't really care about five or seven hundred horsepower i just want to feel happy when i'm driving these cars i want to be taken away from the world and its problems and I don't, you know, 700 horsepower potentially creates more problems because right. you go by a, a, a law officer and say, yeah, what I was doing was totally safe. And they're like, here's yeah, no. the cuffs, <laughs> you know, so I want to um, talk before we go. Um, I want to talk a little bit about triple zero magazine, because I know that n- maybe not everybody's listening, has heard of it. And obviously we've talked a lot about it. People have an inkling of what it's about just by listening to the podcast. Um, what is triple zero magazine? <laughs> You know, I don't. I, I didn't know how to answer that question when we started it. And we, we, my wife and I went to a restaurant in San Francisco that I highly recommend to anybody called Foreign Cinema. I couldn't believe it was still going. San Francisco restaurants usually don't last, and this one has lasted. And uh, we had this fun conversation with our server, and it was down. It's down in the Mission District in San Francisco, and she was a local. And I was like, "Whoa, San Francisco local! Like that's unusual." First of all, and you know, um, you grew up here in the mission. What you, what, what, you know, Oh, my dad had a Porsche. Like she was asking what we had just launched or something. It was just this really fun conversation during the course of dinner off and on. And she would come back and forth. And she mentioned her dad was a painter. I was like, your dad was a painter in the mission district and he had a Porsche. Who was your dad? Like, you know, it was like, 
that's pretty interesting. So we were talking and, and she comes up, she's like, hey, the chef would like to come out and talk with you. And it was supposed to be a non-car night, like just a date <laughs> night, you know? It's like, so Rebecca was like, I guess, but you don't say no when the chef wants to come. So the chef comes out and he's like, what's your story? And he was from Berkeley of all places. He was, you know, and he had a little hot rod 356. And so we start talking and he's like, so what is it? You know, what is this thing? You, I heard you started the magazine. What is this thing? And I said, I looked at him. I was like, you know, it's an art criticism piece that just happens to be about Porsche. And then like, that was the first time it kind of clicked for me. And so triple zero is a, is a, it's a, the goal of it is to create something that's really enjoyable and immersive without drop down menus and without screens and more things and hyperlinks and clicks and all the stuff. And you suddenly don't know where you were anymore. Triple zero is this, is this sort of almost ad list. We only included ads because it didn't feel like a magazine without any. So we've got five, five percent ads when usually it's about 60 70 percent ads so the idea was to kind of create this immersive luxurious fun reading experience that feels like i do when i read like a great vanity fair story it might not be something i was all that interested in like a like a really good vanity for vanity fair story or the atlantic story if this if it's really well done theater if it's really well done writing i i don't i didn't even know i cared about these horses i didn't even know that i cared about algae you know but it's good writing and i'm here for it i find myself on those websites doing the same thing (laughs) yeah so how much cooler if it's like about a subject that i'm actually interested in like porsche i was like can we replicate that can we could we do a deep dive on 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 early 911 headlights or could we do a deep dive on shot beaming or could we do a And surely at this uh, time you're sitting at the table going well print media is dying how can we make this <laughs> you know like yeah. how can we make this happen is this reasonable How dumb how dumb can we be um <laughs> you know it 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 is dying and uh, you know a lot of that is I went from excellence to panorama um, because I saw the future of newsstand, I watched the newsstand dying and, you know, Borders and Barnes and Noble killed off the booksellers and then Borders went under. And so that left just Barnes and Noble, but those booksellers, they, Borders was around long enough to kill the booksellers, you know, all those independent bookstores. But more than that, I also saw that the internet and other things were killing the newsstand. Who goes to the newsstand anymore? And back then I realized you could really only get excellence in like one or two places in our county here in the Bay Area of all places. And so Panorama made sense on a lot of levels and they were hungry for change. So I thought, okay, take this giant risk after 15 years of excellence and go do this. And after about three, four years, I realized I wasn't, I was the right editor to help them rethink that magazine and rebuild the business plan and rebuild the the magazine to serve the club well, to serve the club members well. and that was a really fun project in a lot of ways. But I kind of also said, gee, you're 40, whatever I was at the time, 41 or something. And I said, you know, that you thought that was so risky. That wasn't all that risky. Gee, jumping from excellence to panorama. Wow. And I, I guess I just kind of felt like print needs a guinea pig. Like print needs, somebody's got to rethink the model because print advertising is done. You know, print, it, it'll keep going for sure. Vogue and others, it's not done. And I think there could even be a renaissance as people realize that a lot of these followers, you and I were talking about that, Chris, at one point, 
lot of stuff BS, or it's so segmented, how are you even marketing to it? Um, or all the people who show up are getting the media for free. So what are they? Are they, do they have disposable income? Are they real buyers? Like, are they going to convert? And I can tell you the conversion rate from our own Instagram is terrible. So, you know, I kind of thought, I want to try something in print. I want to, this is what I know. This is what I know how to make. I know how to make magazines. I don't know how to do much, but I know how to make magazines. So I want to give this a shot and I want to see how far can we push the print magazine experience? How far can we take this experience when someone walks into the theater? I think you guys are doing a wonderful job. I always look forward to getting it. And um, like most other print magazines, it was something I always liked just having around. You know, you'd have, you get an excellence or a road and track in the mail. You might flip through it a little bit, but I read every single triple zero. I read every article. It, it's, I, it's presented as a book. It, it, every saying time. magazine is almost a it, disservice. It's, it's, <laughs> it is. Yeah. I have my latest uh, edition as well. It's not, not issue edition. I'd like to think of it as, <laughs> <laughs> and I have my latest one on my desk at home. Yeah, it's it's a very high quality publication. Yeah, you you guys are doing a great job, and uh, oh, I, I wish you the you. best of success with it. And I encourage everybody to. Thank where you. can they find out more about Triple Zero Magazine? Uh, we're easy to find on Instagram as Triple Zero Magazine, so zero 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 the numerals. Um, but the best place to find us is online at zero 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 magazine dot com. Uh, so. The three numeral zeros, the word magazine.com is where we're at. And I've got a, an article actually coming up. What is it in the next one? The upcoming? Yeah, like the a really cool one. Alex Alex was raving about that story when he got the proof, uh, as were others. I mean, that people are fired up about that piece. So you you uh, have covered, so that you don't have to say it. I'll say it. The, the, you your story, your story delves into the first Porsche, what's believed to be the first Porsche to be driven in Russia. And, you know, that story came out of that day that we were at Lufkakol. I'd say one of the more other more important cars, an absolutely ordinary looking 356C that had an incredible history. And its owner, Ed, was like, you guys got to see these photos. And Honestly, when you told me about it, I was photos. like, I really don't want to write this. Because it was just like, oh, the go t- this is a cool car. Go talk to this guy. And I was like... Uh, a little bit, you know, but then once I learned more and I saw the book and everything, I'm like, oh my God, this is such a great story. And I don't run necessarily reveal everything that went on, but it's really worth a look. And uh, I'm really proud of that piece. It was a lot of fun to write. And um, it, I was up till like five or six o'clock in the morning working on it before deadline and everything like that. And the reason is, is because I, I really appreciate being in triple zero magazine and being able to ha- being able to kind of have this this latitude that I've never had anywhere else to write. I mean, the article with of take the car was like almost sixty pages, I think. Yeah, you know, it was, it was like yeah, I mean, 50. that was. <laughs> Look, it showed. It showed. I didn't know that you were up till five a.m. on deadline, but that's what I do <laughs> all the time. Procrastinator. Like, oh, you should see that. Google, when you get a chance, Google the creative method as a bar graph <laughs> under images. Like, do Google images for creative method. And it's this bar graph, and it's got sort of this green area where on the left it says work begins, and it's this green, really long green area. It says F off. <laughs> so like, the first, like, you know, for the first, you know, three quarters, two thirds, seven eighths of the graph. And then, like, there's this little yellow, um, this little, little itty bitty yellow stripe that says all the work while crying. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then there's the red zone and it's deadline. Yeah. Um, yep. So, you know, that's part of the deal. I, I after 20 something years, in the same way, 
Uh, we all should be more responsible. And I, I think there's like two people on earth that are, and everyone hates them and they know it's, so they don't, they won't really openly admit it, but then we all say you should be a certain way, but it shows that you, you took that time because it was a very easy edit. It was the easiest edit for me of your work so far. And, and everyone was raving about the piece and um, you put on a good show. And I love that you like the, the take the car. Yeah. 60 pages for a travel opic. I think that was sort of the biggest uh, word count we had run to that point. And, but again, the point of triple zero is it's a stage. It's a, I'm just a stage manager. I, I just wanted to build a print vehicle as an, as an sort of a archival thing that had legs and could create a stage for people to do stuff on. And that, that Russian piece, we have Ed to thank for tipping us off to it. Um, but, you know, that car could have been so – that's an encapsulation of triple zero, too. You know, that car, as you wrote, that, that car, the, the photos could have all been lost so easily when that guy passed away. And that's something that we're trying to do too, is capture these stories before they can't be told. And we're trying to capture them well and to duplicate these documents so that a fire can't take them. If we can send a few thousand of those out into the world or, and well, then now fires or earthquakes or other things can't erase their record. Well, and that I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and spending all this time with us. Yeah. It's, well, you guys went, we went way long and that's sorry okay. for the long answers and that's all right. Yeah. But we do long form here. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what podcasts are for. This isn't uh 60 minutes on uh CBS. Nope. We're, we're good to go. Cool. Well, I shouldn't look at the clock and uh, if we've kept any, any, any listeners, thanks for, for listening. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely, man. There's so many Thank things you. in the show notes that I had that I want to talk to you about, like your experience with the yellow bird, for example, but I think we're going to have to save it for another time. I think we'll have you back and we can tell us some more stories in 2021. Well, I think the rapport is pretty good. Jake, Chris, Pete all seem to play well together. So if it, if it works, it works. Let me know when and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll pour a beverage. Sounds good. <laughs> we'll take, take care of yourself. All right. Take care. See you guys. Bye-bye. I love Pete. Yeah. I, 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 as I said in the intro to the podcast, I really look up to him, and he's, he's, he's helped me become – he's the best editor I've ever had. I've worked for a lot of different magazines. He's easily the best editor I've ever had. And an editor – and obviously the founder of Triple Zero, too, but, right. you know, editor. And a good editor brings the best out of a writer. Sure. A bad editor puts themselves in the in the writing themselves by changing things. And Pete has always made me a better writer. And he's easily the best writer I've ever I've ever worked for. And Triple Zero is great if you're a fan of Porsche or even not of Porsche and you just like beautiful things that are great with great it's, stories. It's super high quality production, not only in the physical production of the book. Or magazine, but it is the, the content and the creation, is. and just the quality of photography. I mean, that alone—if you just like photography of cars, right? It's amazing. I pour myself into the articles that I write for them and give it everything I've got, and so does everyone else that works for that publication. And yep. I, and I, if all the other places I've worked and done work for, nobody else does that. It's, hmm. They just don't. Um, well, that's all we have time for today, guys. I, I really look forward to talking to you on. 
Friday. Friday. We're going to have a news episode on Friday. I forget every week. <laughs> always I Friday, Chris. My problem it's is. always Friday. Um, please subscribe to the podcast. <laughs> leave a review. We would really appreciate that. Head over to Patreon if you want. The links are in the show notes. And please check out triplezeromagazine.com and have a look at what Pete and the guys are doing over there. Take care of yourself. We'll see you on Friday.